Welcome to episode 239 of the Women of the Military podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Huffman, and this week my guest is Lacey Arnadas. Lacey experienced many life transitions while serving in the Army. She was planning to enlist in the Army Reserve in high school, and her mom talked her out of it. And then, after one semester in college, she left college and started working at Lowe's. Her friend said that she was going to enlist in the Army, and she decided to join her through the Buddy Program. She served as an air traffic controller, deployed to Iraq twice, and after she left the Army, she decided to join again a few years later. Today, she is the co-founder of Elevated Oats, and they are dedicated to helping people live their most fulfilling lives, and she wants Elevated Oats to become a household name. It was really fun to get to talk to Lacey and hear about her experience in the Army. Before we get started with this week's interview, I want to remind you that you have the opportunity to listen to Women of the Military podcast now on Reese Across America Radio twice a week. That's Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. And you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. And now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Lacey. I'm so excited to have you here for another episode of Women of the Military Podcast. So thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Amanda. Happy to be here. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Ooh, (laughs) a big one. So when I joined, it was in 2005, so very close to 9-11. To be honest with you, I had joined the reserves a year before at 18 and my mom convinced me not to ship. And so I didn't and I did my high school year and went to college, dropped out after a semester and was really, really sick. Couldn't go to work for like 10 days. I was working at Lowe's at the time and I couldn't go to work for 10 days. So I wasn't getting paid and I didn't have any, you know, any insurance, you know, the first taste of being an adult, (laughs) not living at home. And my friend who I lived with at the time, she was kind of seeing a recruiter and she came in and I'm like, so sick. I'm like laying on the floor of our apartment and there's no furniture. (laughs) And I'm just like, I have strep throat. And she's like, she walks through and she's like, Hey, I think I'm going to join the army. Like nothing's going on here. And I just like kind of rolled over and was like, yeah, when are you meeting with them? Because nothing's going on here for me either. And so, you know, I'd already thought about it a year before and active duty just seemed like the way to go. You get health insurance. Um, they kind of still take care of you like mom and dad would, but you're, you have that little taste of independence like college. So I was like, yeah, let's just go for it. Nothing's going on here. I'm tired of my little small town in Indiana. And then we joined under the Battle Buddy program. So you already kind of had a inclination toward joining the army and then your mom talked you out of it probably because she was concerned. I mean, post 9-11, it was a little scary time. And so you did that and then you did the battle buddy program, which I've heard of, but can you like walk us through what that experience was like? Yeah. So we joined together. We shipped at the same time to basic training. We went to the same basic training. We were in the same platoon, even. I don't think that happens for everyone, um, but it just, it worked out for us. So we had the same MOS as well. We were both air traffic controllers, 15 Quebec. And that was interesting too, because you had to pick, you had to pick a job that both of you wanted. 
So it's like a little bit of teamwork there. Then we both went this, to the same AIT and it, you're supposed to go to the same first duty station as well. But the pa- my paperwork kind of got messed up because of my previous enlistment. And she got assigned to Korea and I got assigned to Hawaii for our, our first thing. So we were like separated our whole careers, actually. Very interesting. Not supposed to happen that way, but it did. <laughs> yeah, I think I've heard from people who've talked about the Battle Buddy program is like, this is how it was supposed to go. And like somewhere along the way, <laughs> something gets messed up. But at least you got to be in basic and AIT together. And and then by then, I mean, you're in a unit. A lot of people are brand new. So what was it like to go through basic training and AIT? And then we can talk about your first assignment. Oh, basic training. I loved it. I was <laughs> I was like obsessed with in the army now with Polly Shore at the time. <laughs> and, you know, be all that you can be. But they had just changed the, the, the motto to Army of One. Very interesting. My basic training was the last to have BDUs and we got issued BDUs and ACUs. Very interesting. I just loved it to be honest with you. And then I was nervous to go to AIT because I guess most people don't know what to expect there. You know, like the movies aren't stereotyping AIT, but that was very similar. It was a nice interim between, you know, being full-time active duty and the basic training. So you had kind of those two vibes going on. Uh, we were there long enough that our AIT was four months. So we were there long enough that we got to go into phase five plus. And so we could go off post and like wear civilian clothes and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's interesting that like AIT is kind of like a pseudo, like a mash between both. And you think, oh, I finally graduated. I have all this freedom. And then you get to AIT, you're like, oh, no, not really. And then, but you go through those phases and you get to gain more freedoms as you go through it. Yeah, they really break you down and build you back up. <laughs> I mean, that's what they're trying to do. So, yeah. And that's interesting that they were like, here are some BDUs that you'll wear at training. And I guess that's what happens when they transition to, I mean, like, they need, as an enlisted person, you get issued your uniform. So if you have to wear them, then they need to give you both. But it's like, I was in as the Air Force was switching. And when I did my college ROTC, we were in BDUs, and that was my uniforms when I first started, but they don't issue officers new uniforms. And so it was like, I had to buy new uniforms, even though I had just paid for the BDUs. It was like, I didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah, that's not great. Oh, well, that's life. So you went through the training. It sounds like basic training and AIT were like both a really good experience. And then and then you guys found out that you were going to be separated. So what was that like? Were you disappointed? And I mean, you were also going to Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't that disappointed because I was going to Hawaii. Yeah, I kind of got held back a little bit in AIT because I had a sprained my ankle on a, like during a PT test. So I had to stay a little bit to, you know, heal and then pass it. So she had left before me. So that was kind of a little, you know, sad, but my whole class ended up going to Korea and I was kind of thankful that I went to Hawaii, even though I ended up deploying within six months of getting there. (laughs) Wow. That's really interesting that so many people went to Korea 
and that you were supposed to be with your friend and you went to Hawaii. Yeah. That's like really funny. So you got to Hawaii, you got in process, like how quickly after arriving did you find out that you were deploying? Pretty much the, like, as soon as I was in reception, like they were like, yeah, your unit's deploying. Okay. Yeah. But I didn't know exactly when we were deploying uh, until it was probably about a month or so. I think I got there in December. Oh no, it was only like two weeks, really. I got there in, right after Christmas, two days after Christmas in December of 2005. And then I got to my unit in January of 2006 and they were like, we're deploying in July. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> and where were you going? Um, Iraq. Okay. So what was, I mean, I'm guessing that when you got to Hawaii, you guys were spinning up, getting ready. Like there's all kinds of stuff going on, getting ready. Like, and you're trying to learn your job at the same time. So I'm sure that six months flew by and then all of a sudden you were on your way to Iraq. So what was that like? Um, we had the six months as air traffic controllers in the army, it kind of, I joined at this weird time where they kind of got all the air traffic controllers in the military out of the towers stateside because we were deploying so much. And then they filled them with, you know, DOD contractors and things. So at that time, we weren't able to really learn how to do our job until we did deploy. So I was very thankful that we were going to do that because like this is what I signed up to do. Um, but getting ready for deployment was a whole lot of like unloading tricons, which are like big, you know, for people. Well, I think everyone listening to this probably knows what a tricon is. Um, no, probably not. Okay. Well, it's just like a big storage container. Unloading tricons and loading them back up and then unloading them and loading them back up because, you know, I, I was only a POC at the time. So I didn't understand that we were like taking inventory of things and like, you know, what it really took. I just followed orders. <laughs> but then oh, I, I did get to go on one field mission before we went to NTC in California. And I w was able to earn a rating there, a little tactical rating. That way I could get started, like have a little leg up when I got to Iraq. When I went to Iraq, I went to Talafar, which is like northern Iraq near Mosul. I was one of, I was the only female and seven males state, like in my little remote unit. Uh, so that was very interesting. And that the place overall had not very many females. So like every time we would go into the DFAC, we, or the dining facility, you know, like you could hear the rustle and bustle, like kind of stop because like women were so rare there at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, women aren't very common in the military. And then if you're at like a remote place, there's even less women. Like when you're at like a big base, like I would, I would go to Bagram and there was like, you know, a lot more people. So then there's a lot more women even though they're still a minority. But then at the FOB, it's like you could count the number of women on the FOB on your hand because there weren't very many. So, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly how it was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so did you have a good support network from the seven guys that you were with or did you face any challenges in that arena? That was very interesting. I felt very protected by them. Um, my platoon sergeant actually, like, had a, I'm going to call it a family meeting um, where we, it was just a meeting where it's like, you know, this is your sister in arms. You know, there's not that many females. Like you need to look out for her as well. Like I want you to treat her like she's, you know, a brother or a sister to you basically. So I felt like I had a good support network there, but it was off putting because I would just be like eating, you know, 
a lot of, it was all, a lot of at the dining facility or just like when you're working out, but really I'm just like trying to eat my food and just like random guys like coming up, trying to like talk to me like, Oh, I heard you on the mic or I saw you here. And I'm like, what is happening? I'm not. And then, so like they would put me in the middle of the table <laughs> to make it real awkward for them. And yeah, I mean, I remember when I was in Afghanistan, people would just like come up to me and like talk to me. And I was like, like same thing like at the dining facility they would be like because i had i would go off base so i had like a combat shirt and they were like how did you get that and i was like well i go off base and it's like and but the guys were wearing them too and so but maybe it was you know why do you have that i don't know it's kind of interesting so i can see that dynamic i remember one time someone came up and like touched my arm and i was like why is a stranger touching me but i was like this is not okay so yeah it's an interesting dynamic so yeah but you got to learn your job and you got to do your job which is interesting i mean it makes sense like you guys were deploying so much the army was like deploying deploying so they were like we can't just have no one in the air traffic control tower yeah because they're like a lot of those have civilian aircraft that come through as well so they still have to keep it manned and then you know there's uh the reserves that that stay at the air airports and things. So it was a problem. So they had to come up with a solution. Yeah. So how long were you in Iraq? That's an interesting one. So I'm going to give you a little bit backstory. I was long, I was in Iraq long enough to earn two CTOs through the FAA, which is a control tower operator rating to become an air traffic controller. And those take six months. I was in the unit that got extended, the first unit that got extended. So I was there for 15 months total, which was very interesting because we were there and it was like, all of a sudden we're like, yay, we have three months left. And then we're getting these reports from like the married people that like, hey, my wife is telling me that you guys, that we're getting extended. And it was like on the news in America before we were ever told that we were getting extended. So it was like a week later, we have a, you know, a battalion meeting and they're like, oh yeah, you got extended. So what was three months was now six months. That was really hard. Yeah. I read, uh, Laura Colbert. She wrote a book about her experience in Iraq and she talked about like, they were like counting down the days and then they extended. And I think they got extended multiple times and it was always like, it wasn't even like three months it was like they were in the final like 30 days and they'd be like oh yeah you're not going home yet and it was at the when they finally left they just were like in the trucks and they were like are they gonna tell us that we can't leave because they just and their morale like it really took a beating on their morale yeah that's like um you can't be doing that to people it's mentally tough like really mentally tough yeah, she had like a whole trip planned coming home because they were that close to getting home. And then they had to cancel everything because they didn't go home. And yeah, it was really hard. And I, f- I feel like even worse, like the fact that like they're talking about it on the news in the United States and like family members are hearing about it. And you guys are in Iraq and you're like your family, the families are like, are you sure you're coming home? Because this is what the news is saying. And you're like, what? I didn't know that because you only have the AFN network so you know yeah um yeah we were like no and then they would try to yeah it was just like they were trying to be like no we haven't heard that no don't 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 get all riled up yet you know because we're people get disgruntled (laughs) 
yeah. Yeah, that's really hard. So, so you were supposed to be there for a year and you stayed for 15 months. Yeah, and I ended up getting an Article 15 while I was there. Um, so that's a whole story in itself. Uh, <laughs> I took my R&R within three months of getting there. So because I got that Article 15, I ended up not being able to take any 40 passes to go to like Qatar because that's what they kind of offered us because I was flagged. And um, so I went like an entire year with no, no, no day off. But my Article 15, I'm sure everybody wants to know now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do. I was just, you know, a young, dumb kid. I didn't understand really kind of what was, what I was doing and the implications of what that was. And my girl, my girlfriend, girl slash friend, who came to visit at one of the fobs because she was the commander's driver. She like, you know, wanted me to take a picture of her where she like flashed the camera for her boyfriend. Cool. Not a big deal. This is before, you know, like smartphones, really. (laughs) It's not like we hadn't seen each other like naked before. It wasn't a thing, right? But I took that picture. She put it on a flash drive. And while she was on her R&R, someone had taken it off her computer and it got distributed. So then I basically got in trouble for distributing, manufacturing and distributing pornographic material in Iraq. When it, yeah, when it wasn't even, and I, I mean... They punish you with Article 15, like, that's the military, they they do that. But, like, to then when you're in a war zone and you get extended, like, three months and then be like, well, remember you made this mistake way over here and it's already in your record, but we're going to punish you. Like, I feel like the morale aspect of that is one of the challenges, I feel like. Sometimes the military, it's like, come on, like, they're in a war zone. You took your R&R at the beginning of the year. Yeah. And I was on extra duty for 30 days as well. So it was, <laughs> I was working shift and then doing extra duty. It was, yeah, it was challenging, but, um, it, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. I mean, that's all you can say, but that is, that would be really hard. And I mean, you were like, I already got punished for it. And then it felt like more it felt like more than just the one punishment because then I wasn't unflagged immediately. It was kind of like a whole thing, you know, getting awards, uh, was a thing. So yeah, it felt like more than just one punishment. Yeah. So that sounds really hard. So you were in Iraq, took your R and R at the beginning and then your time got extended and you never really got a break after. I was young. So (laughs) It's like a handle it. Just a little bit. So coming back from the deployment, what was your morale state and what was it like going forward? You know, I'm, I'd like to say I'm a really resilient person. Um, pretty cheerful still. Bounced back from it. Like it wasn't the end of the world for me. Um, but coming back was a shock because I think I got so used to, you know, being around these people and like, being so tight knit, then everybody kind of goes their way, you know, people go back to their families. And then there's this separation that you kind of have to get used to again. And then the world had changed, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure that happens for everyone. But like, before I deployed, there was no such thing as an iPhone. And after I deployed, everyone had an iPhone and texting was, you had to be unlimited. Like, it wasn't a thing before. So I was like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
technology was changing so much during that time and i know you were like people are like how do you not know what was going on in the states it's like we didn't know what was going on because like you had internet on your computer but like it wasn't the same you know i don't know it was just so different like i never went to news websites to like i just you know and now i'm like i get my news I would get my news from the AFN, you know? And so it was like our own tailored news that was, I don't know, it was very different than what, and even like when I would go on Facebook, it was like people back home were dealing with something so different than I was that it was like, I didn't even like going on Facebook because hey, I got to see all the stuff I was missing. And so then I was even more, you know, detached from, you yeah. try not to like think about what you're missing back home and stay focused on what you're doing, I think. Plus, back then, Facebook wasn't what it is now. <laughs> there wasn't that much news going on there. <laughs> no, it was just updates of family and friends. Like, there wasn't news. It was, and there were not really company. It was so different. You're right. It was, it was what it was. I liked it then. <laughs> A little simpler. <laughs> yeah, a little simpler. Time was different. And you went to Hawaii and you were single, right? So you didn't have like a family to come home to. And then like you lost that community. I remember because I was an individual augmentee and then I went to New Mexico and a bunch of people went to South Carolina. And I was like, wait, now I have to go through this like transition back into the real world by myself. I've always had people that were going through it with me because I was deploying and preparing. So what was that like? That was like the first time for me since I had joined the military yeah, that I had really been separate, you know, experienced that. And that's a transition in itself. I, I feel like I went through a little bit of a depression. I was kind of sick for a little bit. I don't know. It, it just kind of went hand in hand. And then I kind of, I'll say, I won't say I became an alcoholic, but I mean, by definition, like how many drinks you drink and like how often you're drinking, I was starting to find, I guess, trying to get relief through alcohol. And when I started to realize that I like just quit alcohol altogether because I'm like, this is not a solution for me. I'm just drinking my problems away at this point. It's alcoholism is a thing in my family, so I can like recognize it. Um, and I just didn't want to go there. And so I was like, all right, something else. And I just found, for me, I found a, a man <laughs> and uh, a new group of friends and tried to focus on, tried to focus on finding a new group really, I think is what really helped pull me out of that. Yeah. Finding that community and getting involved with the other people. Were you living in the dorm? So you, there were other people around or how did you connect with other people? Yeah. So I did live in the barracks, but for me, those were like dungeons. Like that's what I would call them. Um, so like I said, I found a man, I found, I found a place to stay. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, because when I was at the barracks, that that's what just like people like to do is drink as well. And I couldn't be, it's a pretty big culture, I think, in the military to to drink. So I just had to find my group of people that weren't like that. That makes sense. Yeah. I think it's funny. I was like, the Air Force calls it dorms and the Army calls it barracks. And I'm like, that just sounds like 
not as happy. <laughs> not as happy, hun. Like, have you seen them? Have you seen the army barracks? <laughs> I haven't ever seen them. I've just heard stories. Yeah, like just even in Iraq, the the Air Force living quarters versus the armies. I was like, okay, I definitely joined the wrong branch here, guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I deployed with the army, and the first day I was in Afghanistan the one of the ladies in the bathroom was like why are you out here and i was like i deployed with the army and she's like oh oh <laughs> because yes air force barracks even in a war zone are very different and yeah i i experienced that too i know i so i know what that's like and i know how different it is because <laughs> when we got released back to the air force we were so happy to be in the air force building <laughs> <laughs> The little things. Yes. I think they're making, no, I, I'm not even going to lie. I don't know if they're making better better ones, but I would hope to, that they are. I would hope that they're building better situations. That's really interesting. I didn't, I mean, I'm so sheltered. Even though I've done like all these interviews, I've never really talked about like the living situations and how different they are. And I mean, I just experienced it in Afghanistan and I didn't really think about how does that relate to home station? I remember being so curious you know seeing the air force out with the army is like seeing like a, a gazelle in the wild like so you know we approached the air force we're like hey what about this what about this what's that what's this and i remember them telling me that when they have to get like stationed on an army base they get paid extra money because our barracks are lesser quality and i'm like yeah they must be <laughs> yeah they didn't give us extra money when we were deployed. They were just like, good, good luck. Have fun on your deployment. <laughs> but no, it was it was fine. It was a good experience overall. And I mean, a tent is still a tent, but there there is still a difference. There were a little nice teas at the Air Force side. So. so you were able to find your friends and you found a man to help, you know, take your mind off your troubles and... Then how much longer did you stay in the army? Did you move or did you get out? Oh, well, I actually did another deployment. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the sign of the times. Yeah. So I stayed in Hawaii. My whole, my whole first enlistment was in Hawaii. Yeah. I deployed again. Um, one of my friends, I will get there later, but made some nice friends uh, during that time. Ended up going back to the same place in Iraq. So <laughs> was very familiar with that airfield, but we were the last ones out this time. And I'm going like this because we were not the last ones out, but we're the last ones who officially got like orders as a, as a whole brigade, I guess you could say. We handed it over to the civilians, the tower to the civilians. We were training at the Iraqis, um, the Iraqi Air Force, that deployment. So that was a really cool experience. I like, I think I just really liked being deployed. And, and it was like basic training. It was just like a little simpler, um, a little simpler life. You, you, like I said, you just focus on what you got to do. And then after that deployment, I ended up getting pregnant with, that's kind of a complicated, complicated story, but I ended up getting pregnant and this was during the drawdown and I wanted to like reenlist and we only had so many slots during that time. 
And so I couldn't, I waited too long basically and didn't get it one of the slots. And then because I was pregnant, I was like, well, if I go at, to the end of my enlistment, like I won't be able to fly and get to my ha- house, you know, where I'm going to live. So I ended up getting out like a couple months early just so I could fly. And then, so I was pregnant, married at the time to my current husband and a military spouse. <laughs> so I became an, a military spouse and I became a stepmom all in that one marriage. And I was pregnant at the same time. So a lot of changes, a big transition, very big. And just moving from Hawaii to Alabama was a transition in itself too, because you get all this extra pay being in. The, and when you make extra money, you spend extra money and you get more bills. And so it was like downgrading. And then I also didn't have a job (laughs) because I was out of the military. That one was really hard. That transition was really hard. I did not know what I was getting myself into. I didn't think it was going to be that difficult. Um, Not knowing anyone, feeling kind of out of place with the other military spouses because I was a veteran. Not kind of like bitter for just being recognized as a, a dependent sad because I lost all of my, you know, battle buddies. And like, also, you know, you're not moving your body as much, I think, when you get out because the military keeps you in shape and you're outside and all of those things kind of stopped. So that was a really tough transition for me. My husband ended up deploying during that time. And I <laughs> and I ended up moving in with his family for about six months in Florida as well. Lots and lots of transition. I had a really hard transition out and I feel... Like, you were going to re-enlist, and then it didn't work out. And, like, I chose to get out of the military, but it was, like, more for my family. I really wanted to stay in, but I knew that, like, it just with deployments and being dual military, I was like, this just isn't going to work. And so there were a lot of, like, those emotions. And then that loss of identity of being a service member and being a dependent. Yes, I can can relate to all of that. And then you had even more transition with like moving again and living with his family and having a baby like there was like a lot going on (laughs) it was a very tumultuous time (laughs) for me but like I said I feel like I'm a really resilient person like I try to find like hold on to my why you know and just like keep kind of walking towards that and we were really struggling financially this is when all the unemployment things were happening President Obama was like kept extending the unemployment. So thank God, President Obama, because it really helped us out. And when that ran out, I was basically trying to get in back into the military. Like I didn't want to get out. So I had to wait the six months and then wait for the business rules. If nobody knows what that is. You have to, when you're prior to service, it's harder to get back in. <laughs> um, so you have to wait for your MOS basically to open up. And I did. I got back in thankfully, because we needed the money and I was happy to be doing something again. (laughs) Yeah. So you were able to go back in and were you able to get stationed with your husband? That was interesting because he had re-enlisted for Colorado. And, but, and then when I like got back in, they were like, you can only go to Colorado. Right. And I was like, God. but he, his report date was like a year later. So we had to like we had to work really hard to get them to change his orders so he could come there 
with me. But we worked it out and it was only like six months or something that we had to stay separated. I mean, that's another challenge of dual military life. And especially if your finances are like stressed, it's like having two households that it's like, wait, I'm working, but this isn't helping our financial situation. And so I'm glad that you were able to shorten the time and get together quicker. I just don't take no for an answer. <laughs> Sometimes you have to. If someone tells you no, you got to find another person who will tell you yes until you've exhausted all your no's. Then you have to accept it. I mean, a lot of times people stop at the first no, and there's more people that can help you if you just keep asking. Or, you know, say, you said no, but why did you say no? Because I read the regulation, and I don't think you're right. <laughs> Show me what you're, how you're interpreting it. So what was it like to go back into the military? Your life was very different. You had gone through a bunch of change and transition. So what was that like? Oh, that was really hard because my son was 15 months old and I feel like I was just getting settled in to kind of like being a mom. You know, it did not come very naturally to me. <laughs> um, so I was really sad that I kind of was leaving that potentiality behind of, you know, like what I could be and do for my son and offer him and teach him just being there all the time for him. And then I cried a lot because the day I left, you know, to, to go to Colorado was the first day he went into daycare and I was just like a mess. It was an emotional mess. And I, I was going through like postpartum too, I think, um, a little bit still. <laughs> and I just focused on, you know, trying to build a life there and a community there as well. And I was like trying to, you know, get things settled, find a house for us and what the future was going to be. But really, it was very difficult in that this was during the time. Wow, I went through a lot of milestones in the military. This was during the time when Congress made the choice or the, the decision to let, allow women into combat finally. Like just the attitudes of m the men around me changed. It was weird to see. I'm like, this is not how I was used to being treated, you know, as a uh, sister in arms. It was more like, well, if you want to be equal, you have to meet the exact same standards as a man and just very hostile towards. And I was like, you know, there are, it just, they didn't understand, I think, that there were women who were already doing it. I mean, one of the air traffic controllers was, wasn't Lacey Peterson? I think she was like an air traffic controller. And uh, and I'm like, she was on the front lines. And these some of these women can't even get you know, the awards or things because they're not supposed to be in war. So you're taking away from them something that they're already doing. I don't, I don't get why it's a problem. <laughs> Yeah, I was attached to an infantry unit when in 2010, and I was really annoyed with the whole PR campaign or lack thereof, because the way they made it sound when they announced it was like, we're finally going to let women in combat. And then they were like, and we're doing a study. And I was like, why are they doing a study when people are in Afghanistan attached to infantry units, women? Like, that's real world. We don't have to do a study <laughs> to see if it works. Yeah. It's been happening. And for many years, it had already been happening. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so it's interesting because I just finished Fly Girls Revolt and I just interviewed her on the podcast, but she wrote a book about what it was like for women to be allowed to serve in combat aircraft. And it was interesting because there were study after study after study done to try and disprove that it was okay for women to be, even though like during Desert Storm, it was obvious how much the military needed women. They tried to send the women back and the commanders were like, no, we need them here. And then like combat aircraft, well, even not combat aircraft because they couldn't be, but they still had to cross into combat to support and it took so much like lobbying and legislation and like even a new administration came in and that was like the thing that pushed over the change and it was just really interesting reading that history because it helped me understand more why there was so much drama in women serving in combat because it was kind of the same thing like women were already doing it but nobody was talking about it and when they did talk about it they were like oh let's do a study and it's like can't we just take the real world results? Yeah. And and it was interesting because they did this study. I was stationed at Fort Carson. They did the study for the Ranger the Rangers at that post too was during that time. And it's it just made it even worse. <laughs> so I was really happy to get out that time because I was I mean, this was when I had some MST, some military sexual trauma. Um, I was being sexually harassed by my entire like platoon. And when I would try to get help about it, my platoon, the warrant officer in charge told me that when I was trying to get help for it, that not everybody could be a butthole, right? That if everybody around me was a butthole, I was probably the butthole. And I was like, I am so done with this. Um, and it took it took another man giving me text messages, group text messages of the way they were talking about me, giving it to my first sergeant. <laughs> and then they didn't even do anything about it. It was my battalion sergeant major who was like, hey, if you feel uncomfortable in your unit, like I, you can come work up here. I'm like, yes. When? Tomorrow? Yeah. Please? Wow. It said that like, a unit can be so different because like you had someone who sat down the guys in Iraq and was like, we're a team. You need to take care of her. And like, they would even like, you know, make a little, make it difficult to get to you at the DFAC and take care of you so that you could have an experience where you wanted to go back into the army. And then you went back in and you had such a bad experience and you didn't want to be in it anymore because of how you were treated. Well, in the dynamics of, like being where the ranger school and the study was happening and i think that added to it and especially i think that shows like why the lack of the pr campaign highlighting women and what they had done really hurt the military because people didn't understand not people in the civilian section like people in the military didn't understand if like they hadn't you know i don't know it seems like if they deployed they would know because they had been around women but i don't it just shows like what the challenges were and how it made me feel as a woman who had served in combat. It made me really frustrated. I was out of the military when that law went into place, but I was still like really frustrated with how that was dealt with. So I bet, I, I bet like I didn't see any combat firsthand, but I could only imagine like, you know, women just have not gotten the justice they deserve for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. 
We still need to have it. We still need. That's why we have the podcast. We yeah. want to share our stories. We need to talk about it because not enough people know what women have done. And I've learned so much from doing this podcast, learning history from before I was in the military and realizing how the way that women were treated for combat roles was just, you know, something that they had gone through as every time a door was open so that women could move forward and serve. And so it seems to just continue. And then we keep breaking barriers and improving the military. So I don't want to run out of time because I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing today. And so you could talk a little bit about like your transition out to where you are today. I know there's a little bit of time that passed in those years. Yeah. Getting out. I got out in 2016 and I was very happy to do that. Like I said, (laughs) I got offered a job at Denver Center and I turned it down because I didn't want to do the shift work. I had already, it had been three or four years being back in the military. And I felt it very important to be, to give my son some stability because he hadn't been getting it. So I got out and I was a bill collector because <laughs> we, we had moved to North Carolina. I got a job as a bill collector and I was pretty good at it, but it was just soul sucking. And I was like, okay, I need something else, you know, because I'm not really like I was getting a community. Like that's what that really kind of gave me. And I really enjoyed that. Um, but I wasn't enjoying what I was doing. And I'm, so I was like, let me do something else. And I started full-time school for fine arts. And so I was going to school online, uh, full-time, working full-time. And after a couple of years of doing that, I was like, this is, I'm done doing this. Like we don't need, actually, we don't actually need this money. (laughs) So I walked out of that job, was like, I'm not working for anybody ever again. (laughs) I'm done working for the man. And (laughs) so just continued doing school, but started like freelancing graphic design was kind of doing some logos and things trying to get my feet wet and build my portfolio and a battle buddy uh megan reached out to me we had deployed twice together and she was like hey um can you give me can you make me a logo for this uh coaching business that i want to do phoenix rising and i was like yeah yeah cool cool and i think i like looked at some sketches or like looked at some ideas and never made a single sketch and, and it was like six months later, she texted me and was like, hey, can you do a logo for this other company? I want to do Elevated Oats. And I was like, uh, yeah. And I'm like, crap, I didn't even do the thing uh, that she asked me to do the first time. So I call her up. I'm like, hey, what? yeah, I can do that for you. But like, what's going on? I thought you were doing this other business. And she's like, yeah, well, I ended up like having to leave my husband. And that's like a complicated story. But I'm in Alaska now. And... I'm, I'm doing this other thing. I'm going to make granola. And I'm like, okay, cool. Make her logo. And then I see her online still, you know, she's like trying to build her, her little brand or not a little brand, but her little following on Instagram. And I see her online. We've been talking and she posted some pictures of like different flavors of granola with like these brown craft paper bags. And I'm just like, Hey, do you need any labels? (laughs) And she's like, yeah. And then from there, I mean, we just like talked every day. I think we still talk every day. And this was in 2019. So we started talking every day and we now we build this business together. We're trying to elevate 
other people, like we elevated each other because we believe in community and getting outside and how that helped us um, with our mental health. Because during that time, we were both going through a lot, getting out of the military and transitioning our lives. <laughs> yeah, that's a really cool story. So you're co-veteran owned and you're working to make change and we'll put links to the show notes so that people can find it. But what exactly are you guys doing? Are you still doing oats or are you doing mental health? I'm a little confused on like what you guys are doing. Yeah. So we're an Alaskan um, granola manufacturer, but we focus on a lifestyle brand. So we're all about getting outside and eating healthy. So it's like mind, body, soul. Like we believe it's not just one thing. It's all the things. So we're trying to, you know, get people, give people a healthy snack. We have these little snack packs that are like granola. They have less sugar. And the second ingredient is either a fruit or a vegetable. So a healthy snack that you can just easily take with you outside. And then we also give back um, around Veterans Day. We like to do like a, a portion of our proceeds to Mount Sinai because they do alternative therapies for PTSD. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put the links to the show notes so that people can find it. And I feel like I need to go check it out and check out healthy snacks. I need those. So I'm gonna go check it out. So I really have enjoyed getting to hear about your experience in the military. But I like to end every interview with what advice would you give to young women who are considering joining the military? Uh, My advice is, if you're on the fence about it, there is so much potential. I absolutely love the training that I got. I absolutely love the people that I met. There are some bad experiences, but I feel like you're going to have that in life no matter what. So you could go a different route and you could be scared either way, you know, go to college and bad things can happen to you there. My point is, is like, don't let one bad story or a few bad stories like make that decision for you. I think that's great advice. And If you're considering joining the military, I have a book called A Girl's Guide to Military Service, which I guess I should have had it so you could see it, but (laughs) it helps answer all the questions that I had when I was joining the military. So you can check that out and I'll link to that in the show notes as well. So thank you so much, Lacey, for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed having you. Thanks, Amanda.